Cardology is now presented by Sardine, and I couldn't be more excited. You'll get to meet their founder, Soups, and some of the team later this quarter, and you'll hear a bit more about why they've caught the attention of some of the smartest fraud leaders I know throughout crypto, fintech, financial services, and e-commerce. Thanks again to Sardine for supporting this episode of Fraudology. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to this week's Tuesday episode of the Fraudology podcast, where we dive into the science and study of online fraud from the perspective of an e-commerce fraud fighter. I'm Carice Hendrick. As we enter the last official week of 2023, and I know everyone is having downtime, I wanted to replay one of the favorite episodes of 2023. This is a challenge for me to select my favorite episodes every year, Uh, but I knew I wanted to include an episode with Gil Rosenthal, not only because it was requested last week by several listeners, but also because I always enjoy our conversations and know that there's a lot that can be learned from them. Similar to me, Gil is also an advisor and consultant, but he works with fintechs that provide financial services like credit card issuing and other forms of lending and banking services. So he has a perspective on fraud outside of my own expertise. And then we also share philosophies and a passion for this space. So even though we come to topics of conversation from two different perspectives, we share the same philosophies and methodologies and just pure passion for this space. And that becomes clear in every conversation we have. When thinking about an episode that provided a lot of great nuggets of information, but maybe wasn't listened to by as many listeners as other episodes, this episode with Gil about multi-factor authentication exploits was towards the top of that list. He provides tactical advice for anyone whose company currently deploys multi-factor authentication and maybe seeing a spike of fraud on transactions that have had successful two-factor authentication or multi-factor authentication occur on a transaction or an account and maybe you're not sure what's actually happening. But even for those who may not deploy MFA for one reason or another in your business, the methodology that Gil walks us through to diagnose the root cause of an issue you know, that's flagged by a spike in data. So there's a spike in data telling you that there's something going on, but you're not exactly sure what the root cause is. This is a masterclass on root cause analytics and identifying solutions that will address the true issue. And if you enjoy learning from Gil, he joined me two other times on Fraudology this year. Once was on an episode titled Utilizing Storytelling to Communicate Cross-Functionality and Identify Solutions. That was on August 8th of 2023. And I have to say that after he shared this methodology that actually is in place for everyone within the fraud organization at PayPal and other large organizations within fintech, I actually went through and updated the methodology portions of my training that I provide for clients and their teams when teaching them fraud prevention and manual review, kind of soup to nuts, as they say. So uh, that one really had an impact on me. And honestly, by proxy, some of my clients that I uh, provided training for uh, the rest of this year. And then he also joined me on October 31st of 2023. um, And the title of that episode was Gil Rosenthal answers questions from issuers, banks and fintechs about payment fraud and professional development. So there were some great listener questions that I just knew I didn't feel as qualified answering by myself as I would with Gil. So he answered questions about, you know, this one was specific 
one of the questions was specifically, how can a card issuer understand what's going on at the merchant level when they're looking at fraud and they're trying to figure out what is happening? Is this fraud? Is this not fraud? It's just, it's activity that's being flagged, but I don't understand the merchant side enough to know what's happening there. And he gave some really good uh, examples of some things that he's seen recently. And then there were also a couple of questions about professional development for people who are on uh, the banking side or the vendor side who want to switch over to e-commerce or fintech. Uh, and there was some really good advice in there that I hadn't thought about. So I highly recommend going and finding those two episodes also after you listen to this one. But for now, you'll get to hear the first intro that I uh, did on this episode which originally aired uh, on October 5th, 2023. And then you'll get to hear my conversation with Gil. So I will let you listen to it. I know from talking with so many fraud leaders, whether you're in banking or fintech or e-commerce, and I know from being one myself, uh, both for individual companies towards the beginning of my career, as well as the last several years being a consultant, that it's easy to not feel appreciated. It's easy to assume or be frustrated that other people in your company just don't understand the importance of your work, uh, the fact that payments are the lifeblood of any online company or online bank, and how important it is to ensure the quality of those payments getting through. I know it can be stressful, but I've also, over the last several years, I would say probably the last almost 10, started to notice a pattern of the people who would share frustrations that they didn't feel appreciated or that their company didn't understand the importance of swapping out a fraud provider, right? They didn't understand the fact that not all fraud providers are alike, not even close. You can literally go from one to another and add millions to your company's bottom line almost overnight. And the same as reverse as well. You can also lose millions overnight. They, It's frustrating to know how important your job is and how seriously you take it, but not feel like everyone else in the company does, whether it's your executive leadership, your direct leadership, or peers in cross-functional departments. But I also noticed a pattern of what is that unique factor of people who don't make that complaint or that seem to be able to get budget for the things that they need or that seem to really enjoy their companies and stay there for a long time. And so I wanted to test out that hunch uh, when we put together the 2023 Fraudology Benchmarking Survey sponsored by Forder. And it was really interesting for me to see the data black and white and go, huh, okay, so that hunch, that observation I've had, there's some truth to it. And I know you heard Shoshana Marini and I talk a little bit about this a couple of months ago when we were talking about the results of the Fraudology Benchmarking Survey, but we didn't have as much time to talk about the how right? Or what that looks like, or if there's any methodology behind it. And today, my guest, Gil Rosenthal, he's back. I know he is a big favorite of any longtime listener. He came on the podcast. I, I didn't look up, but probably four or five times last year alone in 2022. He's just one of my favorite people to talk fraud with. And I know he's one of your favorites to listen to. And I wanted him to share what he's done. But first, I want to share a tiny bit of data. So this is the data that backs up that theory that I've had over the last several years. In the 2023 Fraudology Benchmarking Survey, from that, we know that the fraud leaders that take the time to educate their leadership and their peers and other departments about what online fraud is in general and why it's important and what fraud looks like in their own organization, what they're doing about it now, and where they want the roadmap to go, and why it's important. 
when leadership shares their key metrics, especially, or when fraud leadership shares their key metrics, especially with focuses on approval rates, like what Vineet Grawl talked about just two weeks ago. Such a good episode if you haven't heard it yet already. And I think we even mentioned it in this conversation with Gil. Uh, If you're not talking about, hey, we really care about having as many good accounts as possible, or we care about letting as many orders go through or, you know, transactions or withdrawals or deposits, etc. But we're focused on the quality and we want to keep getting that better. Then of those leaders that do that, 66% of them said that they feel appreciated and valued in their company. That's huge. That's two out of three. And I'd be willing to bet that that other one third is probably just maybe not at the right company. I don't know. I'd love to talk to them, but you know, the survey was a triple blind. So I don't get to ask all the millions of questions they want to of everyone who did answer the survey. But I think that's very, very strong. And there's some other key components in that survey as well around those things. I will include a link in the show notes to that benchmarking survey or study report if you have not read it yet. And uh, thanks to Forder, you do not have to put your email or any contact information in it. All you have to do is click the link and you will have the survey results at your fingertips. Shoshana and I went to great lengths to try to uh, not only provide the data, but to help provide suggestions uh, on how to implement those things, the things that come very clear as best practices and what we can learn from our peers in the industry. So as I mentioned, Gil Rosenthal is back If you have not heard from Gil Rosenthal, you're going to want to go back and listen to all the other episodes we've done before after this one. He's, we have very similar approaches and thoughts to fraud prevention and risk management. But while I've spent the majority of my career on the e-commerce payment side, Gil has spent the majority of his career on the fintech side, the alternative payment side. He was at PayPal for quite a long time. He then went on to lead the fraud prevention and risk management team because for lending at Bluevine. So for lending, and it was business to business lending, risk isn't just about fraud. It's also about credit risk. So Gil knows a lot about those things. And I always enjoy our conversations, both those on air and off air. And over the last two years, Gil has been a fintech advisor. He's gotten to work with some really exciting fintech companies on helping them build out their risk strategies. As you are about to learn, he has embarked on a quite a big project, but really exciting one over the last few months. And that will explain why he hasn't stopped by the podcast in a while. I knew that he would drop everything and do it, but I wanted to not give him that temptation and let him really focus on this new passion project that I personally am really excited to see where it goes. And today, Gil's going to share something that he provided in a presentation for a company. So in addition to doing what he is about to share, he also still provides presentations and, you know, some light advisory to other companies. And in this presentation, he really broke down one of the most core methodologies taught to fraud teams at PayPal. And I should mention that in addition to him, uh, Galit Saporta and Shoshana Marini, the co-authors of the best book in online fraud prevention, in my opinion, uh, O'Reilly Publishing's Practical Fraud Prevention book, uh, also joined him in creating that presentation. Uh, And it's kind of a full circle moment, as Gil will share, because Galit was actually the person who helped Gil learn this core methodology at the beginning of his career, well over a decade ago. So he's going to talk about storytelling and fraud. And I feel like 
I was really confused when he first told me that because I guess for me, when I hear storytelling, I think of making something up. I think of fiction, right? You're telling a story, but it's more about, no, how are you telling the story of fraud to your company? Not only at a high level to your leadership, but all the way through every level within fraud from core analysis and investigations at the very beginning to determine if an order or an account is fraudulent or not. What are those components of the story? Letting those guide you to find the ending. He'll talk about, you know, weaving together what you know is happening and what you assume while filling in the other pieces of data in the story to really figure out the ending. And like I said, he'll talk about implementing it in all stages and levels of fraud prevention and trust and safety from investigations and manual review, data analysis, and especially when presenting data and information to executives and leadership and cross-functional teams. I generally don't talk about the individual consulting projects or even a lot of the consulting projects that I do, but I can tell you that this time of year, I'm often asked to work with uh, online retailers that are realizing that their peak season and their holiday season is coming up. And based on the rest of the year or based on last holiday season, they know that either they are declining a lot of transactions in order to hopefully find the fraud transactions, or they are not declining the right transactions or enough of the wrong transactions. Well, enough of the fraudulent transactions, or it's to get them off of the you know, Visa or MasterCard excessive chargeback monitoring programs where their company is already experiencing high fines and fees for having too many chargebacks or you know the Visa fraud monitoring program, too many uh, fraud reports filed, or they're about to be fined. And that's a real worry in their company. And so I'm brought in to do that. And one of the first things I do when presenting these findings and this assessment to the oftentimes the executive leadership of, you know, fairly well-known brand names of e-commerce companies is I start at the very beginning. I talk about why online fraud matters and what it is and how for every $1 that's stolen from your company, it's going to cost your company $3.75. That's based on the most recent metrics and information from the LexisNexis True Cost of Fraud Survey. I remember it wasn't that long ago in my career when it was under $2. It was especially, it wasn't under three until just the last few years. And then talking about what that looks like and starting at the very beginning and then going into more. So I, even though I do that all the time, I learned a lot in this conversation with Gil. I actually was frantically writing notes, not just because I always do when I'm interviewing someone so that I can come back and tell you what's in the intro, you know, in the intro and tell you what you're about to hear but also because that's often how I learn. But I was also doing it because I have two of those presentations coming up this week. And I implemented a few of those things in that conversation, in those talks, uh, some of the methodology. And oftentimes, because we are in online fraud, and this is such an emerging industry, we don't have formal training that we can take or that we can have our teams take. I will tell you, I've seen the slide deck that Gil created for this. I think it's one of the best out there. Uh, you know, yes, I, I do provide myself, you know, some training on chargebacks and refund fraud and a few other things for teams, you know, for individual teams. But honestly, if when it comes to the core foundations of fraud prevention and really starting at the beginning, whether you've been in it for a few years or you're just starting out or you have a team, 
I highly recommend reaching out to Gil to uh, have him speak to your teams on this. I'm really impressed and uh, not surprised I'm impressed, but he's very good at explaining things. And he does a great job in this conversation of explaining some of those core methodologies, uh, even without slide decks. It's even better like if you're able to follow along and kind of see how that they all fit together. Uh, but this is, you know, a two to three hour presentation. So, you know, we could only get a taste of it in, uh, you know, 30, 35 minute conversation. Uh, but I will, as always, put a link to Gil's LinkedIn in the show notes if you want to get a hold of him about this, uh, just to talk to him about fraud. He is such a wealth of knowledge and just such a great human. Or if you want to learn about his new venture that he's about to tell you about, that is the best way to get in touch with him. All right, guys, I will look forward to speaking with you more on Thursday's episode. But until then, you get to listen in on this conversation I had with Gil Rosenthal. Welcome back to Fraudology. I am so excited to have a podcast favorite return to Fraudology listener and friend, Gil Rosenthal. Gil, I'm so glad you're here and I cannot believe that the last time we recorded an episode was back in December. Yeah, it's been a minute. Great to be back. We have both just been so busy. I think I knew that you were busy on a pretty big project in the beginning of the year and I didn't want to, you know, disturb your head down and, you know, focus and everything. And then next thing we know, it's pretty much August. So yeah, I guess officially it is. It's just like, you know, we're a day or two in. But I'd love for you to share what you can uh, with Fraudology listeners, especially those that, you know, love to listen to your episodes. I mean, I've gotten to know you over the last few times you've come by. What have you been up to in the last eight months, seven or eight months? I mean, you know, you could share it a few minutes. <laughs> you could write a book. <laughs> I uh, started my own startup, which is intense and, and crazy, but I, I'm now the CEO and co-founder of Choir Technologies, which is very exciting. How do you spell that? Oh, um, C-H-I-O-R, like the word choir. Like choir. Okay. Yeah. I, w- I actually was expecting um, with a Q. I don't know why. Um, like a choir. Because it's a startup. The weird spelling <laughs> right. is expected. <laughs> it's true. There's no Y in there. There's no like weird. That's a good point. Maybe that's why I was expecting it. <laughs> I was expecting it to make sense or be an actual word. Um, what can you share a little bit about Choir technologies. I, you know, I love it when operators or practitioners start their own, you know, business because we know what's needed, right, in the market. Yeah. So we offer uh, fintechs and financial institutions help in tracking their business performance, risk-related business performance, and then help understanding and doing risk analytics on those targets. So if you want to optimize your approval rates, we can help you both track that and figure out what are the drivers that will help you optimize. And is that something that you really felt like was needed when you were working at, you know, companies like PayPal and Bluevine and others? This is um, something that you probably wished you had and, and wanted to see it in the world? So more than I did at PayPal and Bluevine when I worked there, this was something that I felt was missing in a lot of the um, fintechs I was helping as a consultant, because this is something that Almost every company builds in-house. It's true. And if you don't know how to build it in-house, then you stumble through it with quite a few iterations. And I've had a chance to build it a couple of times now and help a few different companies build it as well. So I figured this could be something that could be useful for people and can actually help them uh, gain traction a lot faster 
and learn from their own data a lot faster, Yeah, which is key in our industry. It really is. And as a consultant, I can relate. You know, a lot of the e-commerce companies that I work with, they might track a few things, but they're not tracking what I would consider the right things for forward momentum and and progress. And in some cases, some, you know, depending on the software or your data sources, it can be a real pain to get the right data out there. You still have to do a lot of calculations yourself and you're not getting it in real time. You're having to pull it once a month. And so I think it's a great idea. And I'm so excited for you. Thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah. And you're a funded, you know, co-founder, which is pretty exciting. That's a big deal. Yeah. We raised our seed round uh, earlier in the year. And and as I was telling you before, my connection with our, our main investor actually came because they heard me on an episode of Fridology and reached out, which is amazing. It's the best of all worlds. When you told me that, a few minutes ago, and even now, like I almost tear up. That's the best thing in the world for me. One of the byproducts of fraudology that I have hoped for is not just that, you know, fraud fighters get connected with each other and, you know, but that new opportunities come for, you know, fraud fighters and that it can be a form of people connecting where I'm not the bottleneck because <laughs> I love people connecting, but sometimes it's like I could spend a whole day a week doing that, you know, and yeah, and, and I can't. Um, so I'm just, I mean, like I said, you were the one that did such an amazing job and, and talked about such great things uh, on that episode and on every episode you've been on the podcast, but um, I am so grateful that that happened. It's, you know, you volunteer your time to be on the podcast. Every guest does. So I always want to see awesome things happen to the people who guest on here and, and just in general, right? Awesome things happening to awesome people. That's the best feeling in the world to me. I, I agree. And I'm very thankful both for the platform that you offer me as well as all of the other kind of industry experts that you bring on and, and the connections that come from. I highly recommend being a phrenology guest for those who have the opportunity. Well, and practitioners are welcome, right? Uh, not everyone can, but um, I always want to highlight, you know, new voices, but also just different, you know, we all have different perspectives and different experiences and so much can be learned from them. It's also just a great way to, you know, learn from each other in general, or just know that you're not the only one. That's sometimes I hear that quite often, actually, when I go to conferences and people tell me that they listen to fraudology, it's like, I thought I was the only one that stumbled into fraud on accident, or I thought I was the only one that whose company doesn't think that they're the superstar that they probably should think I am. You know, like, oh my goodness, no. So, um, you know, sometimes that can be helpful too, because a lot of times, as you know, from being in, on the front lines or in the field, like it can be kind of lonely to be the only person in the company that cares as much as we do about, you know, what we care about and protecting the company. But also, you know, you brought up approval rates, you know, because you listened to it. I had Benit on the podcast um, about a week ago. And I think that we sometimes do ourselves a disservice by calling ourselves the fraud department because we, you know, are, should also be focused on <laughs> approval rates so much. I've been kind of playing with the term revenue integrity lately. Um, I'm just as guilty as anyone else for calling it fraud, obviously, right? It's in the name of the podcast and I say it all the time for shorthand, but I feel like that's part of the PR problem we've created for ourselves. Uh, at times, for sure. Yeah, and then I think trust and safety doesn't necessarily reflect the benefit you're adding to the company. So yeah, I like revenue protection. I, I think in times fraud protection with the right context can be good, but I've always treated myself as risk management. And then probably that's the, the terminology I'm the most comfortable with. 
Yeah. I just think that, you know, in some ways we need to do ourselves, if it's not in the title of the team, then it's in, you know, the the reporting and the, and the conversations and the meetings that we have with cross-functional teams about showing them that you care just as much, if not more, about letting the good revenue through than, you know, protect. It's about letting the right revenue through, right? It's about quality and hopefully quantity too. You know, you're also protecting the bottom line because for every you know, depending on the company and the business model, whether it's in lending or whether it's, you know, in e-commerce or banking, you know, for every account or transaction that's product can, you know, have a three to 10 X, you know, cost to the business. So, you know, it's important to balance both, but it's our job to help the good users and stop the bad, bad users, not just one or the other. So well said. Another gillism. I still have one from our last episode that we did in December. I'm going to butcher it now, but it was something that you said about we can't be, it's, you know, it's impossible for us or fraud technology to be mediocre when the other side is continually innovating. And I think this last year, especially, we've just seen evidence of that time and time again. Yes, that definitely can no longer stand in place. Have to innovate and move forward. Well, recently you did a presentation for a company that commissioned you to do it and you were sharing with me the subject matter and I thought it was really fascinating and a really interesting way of looking at approaching fraud and risk, both at the micro level as well as kind of the macro level internally for your company. So, you know, obviously it's a two hour presentation and you have a really good slide deck. So uh, that doesn't do any good on a podcast, but I'd love for you to share a little bit about the concept of what you were talking about and a couple of the takeaways. Sure thing. Just to start, I want to mention that I did this talk together with Shoshana Marni and with Gilead Sephora, both of which are amazing. Uh, they basically wrote the book. They literally did. And I'm still so proud that I introduced them to O'Reilly because O'Reilly reached out to me and I was like, well, I'm not the right person. But here's who is. And they're two of my favorite humans as well. Uh, they're how we know each other too. Exactly. So they're amazing. And they, they brought me in to do this talk with them, which I think went great. And the concept that we centered the talk around was storytelling in fraud prevention and how we use different concepts of storytelling. So this is something that I learned from Gilead 13 years ago when she taught me how to do fraud prevention, right? And it was a core methodology used in our team. Basically, everyone who learned from her and potentially others who've learned from the people that she've learned from uses these type of methodologies. So they're not brand new, but... We tried to take this kind of one step further and think, how are we using storytelling across different aspects of our work? Not just in our individual investigation when we're trying to figure out, is this a good user or a bad user? Where storytelling is super useful, but also when we try to do larger pieces uh, and work within our organization, because at the end of the day, we need people in our organization to buy into an idea. And we need them to understand why it's important. We need them to understand what is happening. And all of those things can leverage from being good at telling a story. So that was basically the, the talk we gave. And I think we structured it in a few parts. The first part was talking a bit about storytelling methodologies and how do we use them, which to me has a few different aspects. One aspect of it is the kind of three parts of that make up a story, which is context. So we need to understand 
the context for the story we are about to tell, right? So we need to understand our product and how it works. We need to understand our internal systems and our organizational systems and how they work. And what that data means, right, that they're telling you? Yeah, and the different checkpoints and the different uh, vendors that exist in it and and how users operate in it and all of those pieces. We need to understand our customers. How are they using our product? And what are interesting good ways, interesting bad ways to use our product? And we need to understand our business, right? Where do we make our money from? When we have a bad user, is it, are we losing for every fraud case $10 compared to $1 that we make from a good user? Or are we losing $2 compared to $1 for a good user at the work, right? That makes a big difference in how we're going to be approaching fraud or any type of risk management. So that's the context piece. It's basically your exposition where like world building and storytelling. After that, there's the core understanding of what is happening here. Now, every good story lives on a tension of what is happening here between what you know is happening and what you think is happening, right? And that tension is basically the tension of probability. You're making assumptions of what is, what is likely happening here as you are learning more and more information. And the methodology that I was taught from basically the first day of learning how to be, be a fraud investigator is we want to tell ourselves the most likely good story of what this might be and the most likely bad story of what this might be. And then we want to compare them. And as we're accumulating our data, we're basically filling in the pieces of the story. And that can help us understand, is it a good story or if it's a bad story? For So for example, if we see a transaction with a shipping address that is different from the billing address, that can be because someone is traveling, that can be because it's a gift, that can be because it is fraud, right? So now let's start telling ourselves the different potential stories and figure out which one is most likely based on all the other pieces of data we get. If it's coming from the same IP this person has shopped from in the past, suddenly we're less concerned about ATO, for example, and we're also less concerned about travel. It's more likely that this is a gift compared to the other two stories. So that's it. And that's how that probability tension plays into it. I have a feeling that a lot of people that just listened to that and got to hear that you got to have training to be a fraud investigator. Uh, not to mention the fact it was from Galit, who is brilliant and so good at you know, storytelling, really, uh, obviously, because this is, you know, a core tenant that she created. There's probably a lot of jealousy there. I know I have it. And I did receive a lot of training at the beginning of my career, but it was more on the payment side. Risk and chargebacks were a very small part of that. I'm grateful for that because it allows me to do a lot of problem solving and, you know, understand the, the process and, and pricing and, you know, and, and help clients with other things that, you know, I may not focus on, but uh, can definitely add a lot of value. And again, if we're talking about revenue protection, you know, one way to protect revenue is to make sure that you're not paying exorbitant fees when you shouldn't have to. But for you to get this kind of fraud training and to have a methodology of storytelling, I don't know, I can't imagine how much more my career would have benefited from that. I think a lot of these things are things we do in our heads, but not as clear as you have laid out, right? So kind of looking at, you know, what's just the first few factors 
what's the really good story, what's the really bad story, and then let's look at everything else and and put those pieces in to help tell a story. And I think even just making sure that you are asking yourself both of those things and not just one of them is equally important. Because I think too often, fraud analysts are thinking, what's the worst story? And not thinking about the good story, right? Not thinking like, oh, no, using your example, the billing and shipping don't match. Oh, well, we once had a chargeback that looked that had that as an, you know, as a feature of the order. So we're just going to assume all of them are bad. Well, right. But was that the only risk factor in that chargeback? And does that mean that every time the billing and shipping doesn't match, that because you got a few chargebacks for it, they're all bad? You know, so knowing the good story and the bad story and then trying to see which one wins over rather than just tell me why I should cancel this or give me enough reason to cancel it makes a huge difference in accuracy as well as mindset and, you know, a lot of other things too. Yeah, I fully agree. And, and I am grateful for the opportunity I got. I know that that's not how most organizations work. You don't always get two three weeks to learn from an industry expert who spends a large portion of her time teaching you. But that has definitely made me in part fall in love with this profession. So cannot be more grateful. And I know a lot of people benefited, especially a lot of people in Israel, because Galit not only trained people at PayPal, but she was also at Border and uh, a couple other companies as well. I've run into several people who have said I was trained by Galit and that's why I know what I know. Uh, so, you know, and I certainly, you know, I've gotten to train clients of mine. You've gotten to train clients of yours. But uh, Galit just has quite the reputation for probably training the most amount of people in one country, I would say, at least. <laughs> yeah, definitely. If you're a regular listener of Fraudology, you've heard me talk about SPEC. Not only does their no-code platform let you instantly assemble the fraud solutions that you need to stay ahead of bad actors, but Spec's long list of integrations is always growing, empowering you to orchestrate your data to create customized customer journeys. Spec lets you stay ahead of fraud while enabling great customer experiences for your legitimate users. Request your personalized demo of Spec's Trust Cloud today at specprotected.com. That's www.specprotected.com. Or you can visit their website by clicking the link in today's show notes. So moving forward in the storytelling, so that's a really good example of what you're doing when you're looking at the ground, right? If we're talking about, I don't know, an American football game, or it could even be, you know, an international football game, what we call soccer, right? If you're on the ground with the players, right, that would be manual review. But if you're up in like the first area of stands, you're going to see a little bit more with data. And then, you know, if you go up a level and you're up in the press boxes or things like that, you can really see everything from a higher level view. And to me, that would be bringing in all the data and telling the story, you know, on a much bigger level about how all the data interacts with each other, which obviously you're now doing uh, with Choir. So it all ties together. Exactly. And I think the concept at that point is to understand uh, a few things. First, the impact, right? So so we now understand good story versus bad story, maybe, but we need to also understand what will happen when we take our action, right? Because we know that fraudsters don't stay still. You don't just block them and that's it, we're done. And we know that good users who you put a block against, also, if they still are interested in your product, would like a way to work around that block. So we need to understand attack, 
defense adjust, right? Like what is the attack that is happening at a larger scale? What is the size of it? What is the scope of it? And then what is the defense that we are putting into place? And then what is going to be their adjustment, right? And that is a story. That is a cycle because we will need to react to their adjustment. And we want to build our solutions in a way that allows us that level of flexibility and tries to have at least some of the foresight. So for example, one of the companies I was consulting to put a very simple dollar threshold as a defense against a fraud attack because they saw that all of it was over used $500. So they just said, okay, if it's over $500 and meet a certain criteria, we block it. So immediately they had a lot of $450 transactions. I was just going to say, I think we all know what happened, right? I mean, it's actually quite, I don't want to say admirable, but impressive how good fraudsters have gotten at testing boundaries. They really are better than toddlers or teenagers, right? And knowing like where's the line and where you're going to enforce it. And they especially love linear rules because those can create those thresholds, right? The They can realize, oh, okay, it's a dollar threshold. But if I do, you know, $495, I'm just sneaking underneath or $300 or whatever that is. And same with, you know, similar other rules too. But that's a really good example of saying, you know, we analyzed the attack. We saw what are the commonalities. Okay, well, one commonality that is probably the easiest that we can look at is dollar value. We'll put in a defense, but then you need to adjust because they're going to adjust. And so I also hear what you're saying as far as knowing already what's going to happen. I think that's one of the best qualities of a fraud fighter and especially one who is in charge of strategy is we're not just thinking of what's the next step, but we're thinking about what's going to happen in seven steps forward. And I feel like, you know, I've had to learn how to do the reverse as well. So, you know, not only, okay, if we put in this effect, what's going to happen, you know, to the cause, but going into companies and looking at the cause and going, okay, let's think back, let's go backwards to find the, well, I guess it's the other way around, but you know, let's looking at the effect, right? Like the companies don't know the cause. So going backwards and going, what's that effect? Okay. Well, we know what the problem is. What's the root cause basically. But then also saying, okay, if we put this in, what's going to happen in five, six steps, right? They're going to do this. Then we're going to do that. And they're going to do this. And to your point, it's not about, to me, it shouldn't be about addressing a specific attack. It should be looking at what are the things we can put in place that will identify that as well as the next several attacks that they'll be doing. Yeah. And in addition to that, what do we need to keep monitoring, right? So sometimes your best solution is to put that $500 threshold in, which that's fine because that's the best thing you have as a Band-Aid because you need to put Band-Aid sometime. But that means that you now need to keep monitoring that to see, did, are you seeing now $490 transactions ramping up? Are you seeing two $250 transactions ramping up? Because mm. you get that dollar value in in a different way. And knowing what monitoring to start doing so that you can catch the shift very quickly and then adjust to the shift is also very important. So that's the idea of like that attack, defense, adjust concept. I think another storytelling concept that I think about when I think about that first row above the pitch, as you mentioned, of like, I'm not on the ground investigating, I'm now trying to think in a somewhat broader aspect about putting a solution into place, is understanding that stories have timelines to them, and fraud stories always have two timelines to them. There's our user timeline, what are the steps the user is taking and when, and then there's our system timeline. When did, in which checkpoints is this happening? Where is this happening in our system? 
what do we know before it happened and what do we know after it happened, which helps you understand when can you catch it? How can you prevent it? So it's that concept of like keeping in mind the two timelines when you're telling the story and placing yourself on the timeline. I am preventing this here, but this will happen later. So we are going to put another solution afterwards for people that for, for the bad actors who managed to get past our first defense. So that's the two timeline concept. It's really fascinating. I really, I mean, I'm learning a lot as well. Uh, because again, a lot of us haven't had formal training. A lot of it's on the job and just even knowing, okay, there's fundamental concepts. I think, you know, there's a lot of things just kind of that we do naturally that we, you know, just know, we know what questions to ask, right? Or we know where to look, but we aren't thinking of it as methodology or uh, in that way. And I think that I get really excited about this, you know, presentation that you've created and, and obviously, you know, with input and help from Galit and Shoshana as well, it makes me excited that thinking that that is coming sooner than, you know, maybe I thought, right? I've I've always long had a goal of there being much better training out there. Uh, but, you know, myself, like everyone else, I'm so busy having to do the work. It takes time to, you know, stop and build the training, but it's really fascinating. So, you know, looking at the timeline and knowing that, you know, fraud has two timelines, it has, you know, the user's story as well as, you know, the system timeline, which we all know well. And sometimes those timelines are a lot, usually they're a lot longer and, you know, yeah, band-aids in place, but then knowing that you're working towards having a better system in place for the long term. What's next on your, you know, just on the highlight reel, obviously, right? You're not, this isn't the full thing, but it's a good preview. And I really, I'm just so impressed, but I'm not surprised. So from my perspective, the next part of the story is instead of telling the individual user story, everything we focused on right now is, is the individual investigation, but understanding it at a high level. Now it's about trying to understand the like more sociology story, like the broader group story, what what does this generalize to, right? So we we try and turn basically a case into a lead that we can research, we can size, we can say, this has happened 500 times. And when it, ha like, if we take just some of these components, they happen 500 times, this is how many of them are bad. This is how many of them are good. This is the financial impact it's having on our company, which is usually what we measure in, in net margin, right? That's the revenues minus the losses. So we don't forget the revenues, right? Because the good users are bringing in money and you can't wash away good money with the fraud prevention. Yeah, the bad users don't pay your paychecks, right? That's, I think I said that at least a few times a week when I ran my own team. Because, you know, we know that those of us that are charged with protecting a company can take that really seriously, especially if we feel like we're the only ones. And, you know, we can get very much like, oh, we've got to protect it from everything. And so oftentimes, you know, the inverse reaction to protection and, and protecting the company is canceling a lot of sales that probably were not fraudulent. And that's, in a way, that's hurting your company just as bad as, you know, getting charged back or having bad debt. It's the same thing. And I don't know how many people think of it that way, but I've certainly, you know, some of the companies I've worked with lately had to share that, right? Like, I mean, I know that you take protecting your company seriously. Well, isn't protecting your company, shouldn't that also be making them as much money as possible and protect you, you know, and not like protecting them from bankruptcy, essentially? I mean, in the long run, not that that's where you're headed, but just, you know, a loss is a loss. Well, you're giving your company more losses because 
you're trying to do the right thing. But trying to understand the data can help you understand how much, you know, are we looking at this the right way, right? Are we losing too much? Are we being overprotective? Yeah, but I think that's a great word for it, overprotective. Because I really think about it like that. It's like an overprotective parent who is being a bit smothering to their child. Our job, when we say protecting the company, our job is not just to protect the company's bottom line, which is important, it's to protect our users. And our good users deserve protection from our defenses, just as much as they deserve protection from the bad actors who are trying to exploit them. So that's the idea of trying to size the lead, trying to understand what would be the impact in terms of financial impact and user impact of putting in place a solution for this, as well as that helps you understand which solution to put in place. Should I do a 2FA in this situation or should it just decline? Because it's why waste the money on 2FA when there are so many of these are bad, it's too much. And then the next step is to take this and start turning it into solutions. And solutions have stages to them. There's that band-aid we talked about, the short-term solution. Is this hurting us right now? Do we need to do something right away and if so, you need to be clear, this is a short-term solution. It's a different story than a long-term solution. And you need to have different criteria for it. But then you should always, always include the medium-term to long-term solutions as well of, okay, what are we going to do to make sure that this doesn't happen again or that we get better at identifying, separating the goods from the bads? We get more data. We do more research. We do monitoring. There are a lot of pieces that you can build over time when you're thinking beyond the Band-Aid. So if the only solution you're giving is Band-Aid, you're always going to be firefighting and you're basically on that hamster wheel, kind of always trying to catch up with yourself. So that's the idea of like storytelling in the short-term, medium-term, and long-term of solutions and not just single put everything in the same box. I think another example of that is being reactive versus proactive, right? Because those band-aids are reactive. And oftentimes there's been sometimes where I've called a solution a band-aid on a bullet wound, right? Like, you know, we've tried to clean this out as much as we can, but like it's not gonna hold for that long. And like, you know, it's a bigger problem, but and sometimes you have to have a few band-aids on it, right? But sorry, I know we all have a mental image of that. I'm sorry. <laughs> that is <laughs> anyone who's worked with me as a client has heard that several I've been finding lately that I use some of the same phrases all the time uh, in consulting. And I don't always use them on the podcast. I don't know why it's so separate, but it's just, it's funny. I don't know. I've realized that recently, but a very good example of, you know, short-term and long-term, this is something that I know you have done quite a bit in your advisory and consulting work. And I have too, where especially, I mean, now is a great time of year for it. And I'll be doing an episode on it soon. You and I were just talking about it, you know, before we started recording, even though it's August, the holidays are really only like two months away, two, two and a half months, you know, three, you better have everything ready. But honestly, I mean, in retail, especially the fraudsters or the resellers get started in October because they want to, you know, fill their inventory. And I, over the last few years, I've, you know, worked with a small handful of merchants to get them ready for the holidays. But it seems like right around the end of Q2 is when I'm contacted uh, to like, hey, we need a short-term plan for peak or for, you know, our biggest season. Because for some retailers, their Q4 is 
you know, more than 50% of their annual revenue. And so it's a big deal. And I uh, am right in the middle, actually, of creating a couple of presentations for executives of online retailers of short and long-term strategies. And it's exactly that, right? Like this isn't going to hold forever, but this will do for now. You know, they will adjust. And as you scale and get bigger or they adjust, you know, a couple times, this isn't going to last, but it will work for now. And it's what we need now, but we need to be saying that that's also working us towards something better in the future because it's better than what you have now. And here's the timeline and here's the goal that you should have. I think that's a really good way of saying that. Yeah. And a lot of times those band-aids or short-term solutions don't scale as well. So over time, they start stretching and failing. And so you need to also think about what would this look like in a year, in two years? What can we do to... 10x to suddenly be able to support much more with the same amount of people or to be able to do more with less or all of those which there are cliches but but it is how businesses like ours make a profit right this by being efficient yeah that's technology right and that's there's good and bad from that but uh, that's why roi is always measured that's why you know and yeah trying to if you have a good foundation you know if you take the time to have an assessment and you'll look at, okay, where are we at? What's good? What's bad? Where are the gaps? And then create a sh- short-term solution if you need it. Sometimes people are like, you know what? We're okay for now, but what's that long-term solution? Or how can we just keep improving? Because even after once once you fulfill that long-term solution, you still need to reiterate, right? You still need to do some adjusting, but hopefully you've created a long-term solution that has the ability to be adjusted to without you know, ripping and replacing every couple of years. And you've built infrastructure. Yes. Right? Like the, that's the goal of long-term is to build the infrastructure that you can keep building and improving on. So your next Band-Aid is much more efficient. Yes, absolutely. And I mean, I'm just going to go back to what, you know, you're doing with your new company. Data is the lifeblood of making those decisions and having the right data, the right time from the right sources knowing what that data is and being able to use it as your guideposts for those decisions is critical. And too often we're trying to scrap it together with duct tape and find it from so many different sources or, you know, there are always different metrics of data that other people have come up with that are helping them scale more, right? Like, I mean, because I've worked with you know some of the biggest companies, I know that their data and their, you know, their metrics are so much more granular than some of the smaller companies because they recognize that growth is in the margins and growth is in that gray area and it's in the pennies. So they're constantly reiterating and they want to get as finite as possible and detailed as possible in the data. 100% agree. Couldn't have said that better, actually. Might snip that and use that. Well, then I am honored because I don't always feel like that's the case. I feel like I'm snipping what you say and use it. So there we go. (laughs) I don't know how this happened. Um, I do uh, because uh, I just really enjoy our conversations and um, we probably... You know, talked a little too much pre-recording. That's I'll own that. But um, we hadn't caught up in so long. But we need to be. You know, we're towards the end of this episode. I really uh, there was another 
topic or two that we were kind of trying to decide between. So I would love to have you back uh, in the next you know couple of months to you know revisit that and and talk about those topics. But what would you going through this methodology? And I hope that people were you know writing it down and soaking it in. And for what it's worth, I've seen the the really well done deck and seen you know seen the full uh, presentation and training. I would love to sit in the back of one of those. But how? Um, what are some of your final words on this uh, and just, you know, getting in touch with you, all those things, but mostly, you know, what, what would you say if someone's thinking, huh, okay, I feel like I've done some of this, but I haven't thought of it this way. So I think there isn't necessarily just a right or wrong way, right? This is just like in storytelling. You have to find your own way of telling a story that resonates within your own organization, right? So, but just thinking about this of I am telling them a story and I need them to understand it and I need them to accept it. That is a very, very strong concept that I really highly recommend. I would obviously be very happy to be back for Dology uh, always. And um, yeah, and, and then getting in touch with me, you can find me on LinkedIn and you can find my new company at getchoir.io. That's G-E-T-C-H-I-O-R.io. I'm totally going to the website, um, you know, for full disclosure, I didn't know, you know, that it was a fully like flourished company yet. You have, you know, customers and the whole thing, because it's been, you know, a few months and you've done a lot in those last few months. That's, you know, why I didn't want to bug you. <laughs> yes. So I, I appreciate it. Let's say it's 90% a full company, mostly myself and my co-founder still, but we are definitely building it up as much as we can, as fast as we can. Well, yeah, but I, I mean, the fact that you, you know, already have people on board and you're, I mean, that's, to me, that's a full company. It kind of makes me think, what have I done in the last few months? But I'm so proud of you and not surprised at all. Uh, and I know that, you know, additionally to that, you are, you know, open to providing this training to teams or, you know, small groups. I think it would be a real benefit really to anyone that uh, took this because, well, at first you might think, well, storytelling and fraud. Okay. Well, what does that mean? Right. But as you laid out, whether it's at the account level or the transaction level or all the way up in how you're telling the story to get buy-in from cross-functional teams and from executives, it's critical to tell the story the right way with data that people or you know, with information that people can not only understand, but that they can trust to make big decisions. Yeah, fully agree. I find it very helpful. Uh, like I said, I was taught this methodology and have been using it throughout my career. So yeah. And we know that it has been blessed by the master uh, because Galit was you know, very happy to say, hey, you know, if you want to do this for other, you know, other groups or anything else, like, please do. And I think that's a great way to carry on her legacy um, in addition to the book that she co-authored. And uh, I actually have had a message out to Galit to join me on Fraudology soon. And I actually should probably check my WhatsApp because I don't check it enough and I might have a reply, but I would love to have her, you know, she came on with Shoshana about the book last year, but I think I would love to have her talk about advertising fraud, just like she became an expert in you know, alternative payments and, and fraud there. And then crypto when she was at a, a crypto exchange, and now she's at an online ad company uh, working on fraud. So she's just, you know, brilliant. And I always feel like I am smarter by the people that I surround myself and call myself you know, call friends and you are definitely one of those people as our Galit and Shoshana. So thank you for sharing that today. I really appreciate it. 
Yes. And please do come back soon. We will uh, have to set some time on the calendar because there's just never enough time. And there's so many things uh, for us to talk about. And from your perspective and mine, I always enjoy it. Thanks again. again to Sardine for sponsoring this episode of Fraudology and for supporting information sharing and collaboration across the fraud fighter ecosystem. You can learn more about the team and their mission at Sardine via the link in today's episode description.